Good evening. In the last few weeks, we've taken this show on the road, in particular in Dudley in the West Midlands and last Thursday in Rochester. We've met audiences and one of their primary concerns is their access to GP services. They say it's going to take them weeks to get an appointment. They're frustrated, they're angry, and some of them, frankly, are a little bit scared by the whole thing. And the older people have been used to a system that's been there for three quarters of a century that they've trusted in, they've believed, and it's always worked. And we had a GP in from Rochester, uh, you know, and basically we're learning that so many of these GPs spend the first half of the consultation dealing with people's frustrations about not getting appointments. It's 25 years ago this very week that Tony Blair became Prime Minister. Increasing spending on the NHS, getting more doctors, was absolutely at the centre of his successful 1997 general election campaign. But also with that campaign was one of opening up the borders of really quite radically changing the British population. And here's where we are 25 years on. The population of the country, since Blair went into number 10 Downing Street, has risen by 10 million people. Now, to be fair, in the first few years, as the population rose, the number of GPs per thousand patients kept in line with that because they were recruiting more and more GPs. But since 2006, the population has continued to rise, but the ratio of GPs per 100,000 patients has changed. It was 66 GPs per 100,000 patients in 2006. It's now 58, and it's going down. Now, the government promised that they would recruit thousands of doctors, but actually there are about 1,700 fewer GPs now than there were in 2017. We have a problem, we have a crisis. My debate this evening is how do we get more GPs? Would love to get your thoughts and views, farage at gbnews.uk. Now joining me to discuss this, somebody who's in the front lines of all of it, Dr Amos, a London-based GP. We were chatting uh, before the programme and you made the point that it's not you that's in the firing line, it's the receptionist. Yeah, this is, this is the interesting thing about it is that often Angry patients don't get to me. Um, we patients tend to want something from their GP. It's it's really the reception staff that get in the brunt of of the frankly bad behaviour from some of the patients, and it's understandable because. But they're frustrated. Exactly. But they're we're frustrated too. And they're scared. Yeah, of course. But we're we're also frustrated. I think what's what's really important is to bear in mind that the people that go into the NHS and people that are GPs want to help. Um, and sometimes it's frustrating for me as a GP when the fixation is mainly on the numbers of GPs. So obviously we want to, going down to 58 per 100,000 yeah. is, is it's not good enough. But we have to think about the right kind of people. It's not the absolute number because what we don't want is we do want more GPs. What we want is more of the right people. Well, it's how hard they work because yeah, okay. there's a lot of evidence, a lot of evidence. Now, I mean, one thing that's really infuriated people, of course, mm -hmm. is, is online consultations. Okay. It suits some people, mm -hmm. but for many, they're frustrated by it. They don't like it. But also a lot of evidence that many GPs are not exactly doing a full working week. OK, so this is, this is, this is an interesting way of viewing it because I... So the online consultation thing is it's difficult to combat because often a lot of consultations and do pa patients do prefer face-to-face. -face. The evidence is out there. Of course. GPs also prefer face-to-face -face, um, and the evidence is there as well. What 
is difficult is that because of COVID, because of the fact of infectious control, reduced workforce, is that people are taking on more shifts and working from home and, and, and doing more than they used to do. Well, some of you might be, but I think the evidence is that some aren't. But here's the question for okay. you. Here's the big question for you. I get the point that absolute numbers aren't everything. It's what they do, and mm -hmm. I completely get that point. But how do we get more of the right people See, into I... being GP? Is being a GP an attractive thing to do? I mean, let's face it, the money's pretty good. Yeah, see, I disagree on two things there. One, I don't think... I think that some GPs... The idea that some GPs aren't working hard enough is, is a misnomer. I think to understand what the job is as a GP is, is exhausting. It is, you do have empathy towards your patients, and that is quite emotionally exhausting. And what we're finding is that you get GPs that have been doing this for 30, 40 years, and they've seen the 80s, they've seen the pandemic. And what people tend to forget that GPs and doctors, and this is talking about the NHS, nurses are human beings. So we have our families to go to. We have to talk to our, put our kids to sleep. I get that. These, all, these things, and what happens is that when the conversation moves on to GPs aren't working hard enough, what it does is it takes away, and it, you almost not incentivized because you feel that no one, no one acknowledges that. Whether that argument mm -hmm. is fair or not, yeah. okay, mm -hmm. who's to say? Yeah, okay. But, how do we get more GPs? Is it easy to get into medical school? Is it easy to go and do a medicine degree? And I hear mm -hmm. quite a few people going overseas to get medical training, going overseas to do medical degrees. I think the motivation and I would say prestige and the honour, and, and it is an honour because being a doctor for me and when I look after my patients, there is an element of making people's lives better. And you do that every day, okay? Mm -hmm. And sometimes you get thanked and sometimes you don't. Is it hard to get to be a doctor? 100% yes, it's not easy. The med medical school is not, I don't look back at it at the most enjoyable time of my right. life because it frankly wasn't. Do people who are motivated and believe they've got the talent to become doctors go into profession? Yes, but you have to also bear in mind, and you come from the city, that these are very educated people who could do other things. And what you have to do is almost not give them the stick, but give them the carrot. Because I feel that, the right. talent is there. All right, so what's the carrot that's needed? Well, I think it's the, the shortage is mainly because of a lot of GPs are retiring, but there also is a massive, the, the, the largest number of medical students have, are being trained right now than has ever been done. And what you have to have is there's a bit of a lag, there's a bit of a chaos effect where we realise we have a shortage yeah. and then we compensate. And it takes a few years to catch up. So the, to give the government the credit, they are moving okay, towards that. so you that. think we're on the right steps, I on the right path? I feel we are on the right path, but I also feel that people like you talking about is very important because I think what needs to be done is that people need to start respecting... The, I, mean, I, know, I know there was a lot of clap for the carers and there was a lot of... We're, yeah. looking, for, we're looking to look off the NHS, but what we need to keep highlighting is it is a hard job. We are... We are getting... <laughs> we are... I mean, I came straight from work today. We are, we are getting hammered. I believe you. I believe we're you. We're getting hammered. No, I believe yeah. you. I believe you. Yeah. I love your passion. Dr yeah. Ramos, thank you for joining Thanks us. So much. Here on GB News. Well, the point was made there by Dr. Ramos that there are lots and lots of people in training, and that's good news. There's just a lag time. So let's go to Imperial College and speak to Professor Azim Majid. Is Dr. Ramos right? Are there more? Uh, yes, Amos is correct. Uh, there are now more people trying to be, be GPs than in the past. The numbers have increased, uh, but those. Doctors will take a while to finish their training. It takes about three years. The training GPs so will take a few years for those doctors actually come through. 
Okay, so are we on the right track? You know, I, I made the point that since 2006, that ratio per 100,000 has gone from 66 down to 58, which is quite a big percentage move. Are we on the right track to get back to where um, we were 15 years ago, albeit in two or three years? That's a good question, Nigel. I think, unfortunately, not. I think the problem is that doctors, when they train as GPs, then don't want to work full-time as GPs. They find other roles in medicine or elsewhere. Uh, some leave medicine entirely. So, so I think we'll have that problem in the future as well, where doctors will be trained as GPs, but they either won't work full-time or will find some other role in medicine to do instead. So sadly, I think we're not on the right track. I think we'll be in this problem for some time to come. Right. And of course, quite a few people who train here medically then go and work overseas. Uh, should we not, I mean, given the investment that as a country that we make in people who want to become medical professionals, uh, shouldn't there sort of be some, some sort of clause, some contract that they give us a certain number of years of service? Uh, well, the doctors do often come back to the UK after working overseas, so they bring back that experience. I think that has been discussed in the past. But then if, if doctors, why not, you know, dentists, why not science teachers, why not math teachers, where we're all, you know, we're all short as well. So I think once that we open this kind of, um, you know, question, People ask, well, why not other professions where we're short as well as as well as doctors? So I think it's a hard thing to actually implement in practice. And doctors are qualified now with as well. I understand that, but I mean, it seems to me that our reliance on foreign-born doctors, foreign-born GPs, is pretty extraordinary. I mean, one in four GPs operating in the UK, you know, was qualified overseas, got their medical qualifications somewhere outside this country. And I wonder whether, I wonder whether what we're actually doing is we're taking GPs and probably other medical professions away from countries where they're possibly needed even more than we need them. Yes, we are doing that, Daniel. As you mentioned, it's hard to get a medical school. I think there's a strong case for increasing our medical school places quite substantially because uh, people want to train as, as doctors, but you know, currently it's about one in ten will get a place in medical school. So many, many people who are well qualified can't get a place to train as a doctor. So I think, yes, we need to train more and rely less on overseas trained professionals, uh, both in hospitals and in our GP surgeries. Yeah, well, I feel that very strongly too. So, so many people who want to get to medical school don't get in and they're despondent. Would increasing the number, would that lead to, in your opinion, as somebody directly involved in this, would that lead to a significant lowering of standards? Uh, no, because currently about one in 10 applicants get a place in medical school. So people, even people with three A's at A level can't get a place sometimes. So I don't think it would lower standards because the quality of people applying is so high. It's actually very competitive to get to medical school, as Amos uh, mentioned earlier on. So what do the government and indeed the opposition, what's the big lesson they need to learn so that we can get back to having a decent number of GPs per capita in this country? What's the big, give us the big shout out, please, to the politicians in this building behind me. So I think in the short term, we need more hands approach from the government. Uh, we've tried leaving it to the NHS. It hasn't really worked that well. I think like COVID vaccination or HRT, we don't need to look at this and take control of this problem directly. It needs to look at admin uh, work that doctors do, try to bring that down. It needs to encourage doctors who are not working as GPs to come back into the profession from where they're doing now. It needs to um, look at the wider skill mix. So not just doctors, but nurses, health visitors, uh, psychologists, podiatrists, physiotherapists as well, and use those wisely as well. So I think it needs a more hands-on approach and much more intervention from governments rather than leaving it to their just marriages, which hasn't really worked very well in recent years. And a final thought, because that was quite a big shopping list that you gave us there. A final thought from you 
How serious do you think the NHS crisis is? It is very serious. Um, you know, we're seeing A&E departments struggling, we're seeing the ambulance service struggling, we're seeing cancer targets not being met, uh, COVID is still a big problem, so it is very, very serious. And normally, you know, this time of year, spring, summer, things are normally getting better than the NHS, but this year things remain very bad. So, you know, so this is a very, you know, very bad crisis. We've got now Nigel in the NHS. Professor Majid, thank you very much indeed for joining us here tonight on GB News. And they were quite... Quite sobering words, I thought, at the end there. In a moment, a Conservative Member of Parliament says he's going to launch a campaign for more grammar schools. Well, I have to say it's something I campaigned on in the past, but it does provoke some very strong opinions on both sides. This NHS debate is not going to go away in a hurry. We're going to be talking about it for years, in my opinion, but we do need more GPs. Of that, there is no question at all. Your reactions to this debate, to this question. Dear Nigel, throwing money at the NHS won't solve anything. Scrap it and start again. Bob, you are a genuine radical. I have to say that is still very much a minority opinion. We can't even get the political parties to talk about serious reform. Jackie says, we must train more GPs. GPs here in the UK. The skills of some of those from abroad are suspect and begs the question, who checks their qualifications are genuine? Misdiagnosis can be a life-threatening problem and there have been one or two cases of that. Although a lot of people who've been trained medically overseas have come and done a great job in the NHS, I just wonder when they've come from really poor countries whether they aren't needed even more there. We need to train more GPs ourselves. That means more kids taking STEM subjects at school and encouraging them to study medicine at university. Well, look, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I've always thought, you know, if you really think about it in terms of tuition fees, we should scrap tuition fees for those going off to do STEM subjects because we just need more people. Um, to be trained. It's as simple as that. Recruit them from abroad, especially America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Give out visas for well-qualified, get them into NHS services now. Well, fine, but you know why should we deprive New Zealand of their best young qualified professionals? No one has mentioned the pensions pot cap, which means that doctors are facing massive tax bills when they reach the limit. Not, uh, this is very true, actually. Not, while th not worth their while working, David from Eastbourne, you do raise a good point, um, uh, although it would seem that Rishi Sunak's attack uh, on pensions is almost endless. Now, moving on. Last night, we had Tony Parsons on Talking Pints. It was really interesting. He talked about school in Essex. He talked about going to a grammar school. He said during the middle of his time there, it changed from being a grammar school to being a comprehensive. He said from the very traditional education that he'd had at the grammar school, and he mentioned the blazer with the Latin motto on the badge. It went to a sort of let it all hang out, more or less do as you like approach, uh, in which he didn't flourish. Now, we are not for one minute suggesting that all comprehensives are bad. We're not. Many of them are very, very good. Uh, and, you know, 18-year-olds 18 18 come out well-qualified, well-rounded, and all the rest of it. But... There are comprehensives in our inner cities, particularly with huge social problems, where I've always felt very, very bright youngsters who come from backgrounds where their parents couldn't possibly afford private fees and private tuition do not reach 
the upside of their potential, academically or in life. And if you look at who runs, look at who runs the government, look at who's in office, look who runs the civil service, look who runs so many of our top companies, you'll see there are more privately educated people in top positions in Britain than there were 50 years ago. So I feel very, very strongly about this issue, and it's why, actually, it was in the UKIP manifesto year after year, and it did well for us in some parts of the country in local elections. Now, I know there are arguments against this, but to put the case for it is Jonathan Gullis, Conservative Member of Parliament for Stoke-on-Trent North. Jonathan, good evening and welcome to the programme. Hey up, how are you doing, Nigel? I'm doing very well. It's good to see you. I know you're in your constituency this week. It's, it's obviously recess in Parliament. Now, I'm really interested in this. Um, you know, this is a drum uh, that I was banging for a very, very long time. And I seem to get, apart from Graham Brady and one or two others in the House of Commons, there seemed to be almost no political support for grammar schools at all. They were considered to be elitist, and that, of course, can't be a good thing. Funny, isn't it? Those that think that often have been to the most elite schools in the world. So, Jonathan, what makes you think that standing up and campaigning for grammar schools is going to get any traction? Well, I'll tell you what, Nigel. First of all, I actually spent eight and a half years as a secondary school teacher in state schools before I even entered Parliament. So I'm speaking from experience of working in this profession. And like you, my fear is that there are lots of students in comprehensive schools, many of them very good, but never reaching their full potential. Because ultimately, what you'll always want to do is make sure every student in your class passes. And it's those students who maybe get a grade B that could have got a grade A or A star that I worry that aren't reaching that maximum potential. When you see that uh, over 50% of grammar schools are in 11 local education authority areas out of 150, basically the southeast and London, and there's not a single grammar mm. school in the northeast region, that tells you that opportunity for education is not fair, and that doesn't mean, and that means levelling up just won't be achieved in education if we don't give everyone the same opportunity in Stoke-on-Trent and Teesside to a kid in Stratford-upon-Avon or Kent. I buy those arguments. I'm absolutely with you. I feel very strongly about this issue. But back to my question, if I may, you can make those arguments. I can agree with them. There'll be one or two newspaper columns that will agree with them. But can you get political traction within the Conservative Party, within the Palace of Westminster for this issue? Well, I think the government's kind of already highlighted. They've, in, they've introduced these 55 education improvement areas where they've said that education is simply not good enough and they're spread out across the country. What I'm calling for is the government to allow a free school, which has selective um, by academic ability, to be set up in those areas where they openly admit that students are being left behind and students aren't achieving their full potential. And let's show them in those areas of deprivation that these grammar schools can and will make a massive difference. And if it works, and I believe it will, then we can reopen the debate about spreading them equally across the country once again. Because at the moment, it doesn't seem right to me that if you can have a faith school and that will select based on your faith, you actually have um, selection by academic ability within mainstream schools. Kids get put in classes based on their SAT results or baseline assessments at the start of the academic year. You know, what, in, terms of, in terms of streaming? Yeah, in OK, streaming, fine. I get that in terms of streaming. Yeah. So we have yeah. streaming no, already taking place one of, the big, one of the big arguments uh, that I faced uh, when I was out there making very similar points to you was that, ah, it doesn't work. 
Because if you look at the kids that go to the 163 grammar schools that still exist, you'll find they actually come from some of the highest earning households. How do you confront that? Well, they're right. We have a postcode lottery right now. If you're born, as I say, if you're born in the southeast in Kent, you're much more likely to be able to attend a grammar school because over 50% of them are based in that area. What I'm saying about doing is let's go to these <coughs> education improvement areas that will be um, where they have multiple levels of deprivation. Stoke on Trent North, where I represent, is one of those areas. So therefore, you would be serving those people directly. You can use the council tax list and maybe block off instantly to stop people from moving into the area so you can make sure you're serving those people who already live here. Therefore, you know that they're going to be uh, feeding into that school system. You can look at multiple entry points, so not just 11+, plus, 13+, plus, 16+, plus as well. So we know boys traditionally develop later than <coughs> girls. Yep. So that gives them more opportunities. There are creative ways about doing this. And I just think it's... Uh, I think that whilst some in Westminster, you are right, Nigel, want to call this an age-old argument, I don't think it's fair, as I keep saying, yeah. and then I know, as I know you know, the kid in Teesside right. does well, not have the opportunity to get Haven. I'd be fascinated to see how you get on, Jonathan. Thank you for joining me. Well, to talk about this now, I'm joined by Christine Cuniff, principal at LVS Ascot. Now, you're a non-selective mm. independent school, and I know you couldn't hear all of that interview, but you know, he was making the same points that I'm making, but in terms of social mobility, uh, grammar schools can be a very good thing. Uh, but you, um, you went to grammar school, didn't you? For two years. And? Say no more. Well, I think I left. <laughs> My mother took me out before I was expelled. Right, that could have been your own behaviour as, as opposed to a problem with it, the grammar school. I'll tell you what it was. I didn't come from a priv privileged background. I had a state education. My mother had aspirations for me to go to a grammar school and I was tutored through what was then the 12th plus in Buckinghamshire. Yep. Uh, ended up at a high-performing grammar school with a high IQ but no real grounding in education and it was a failure to start with. And I had two of the most miserable years of my life. And I think, you know, when children don't engage with education, when they're not believed in and, and you can buy into what the school is offering, then sometimes your behaviour does slip. And my behaviour did slip. And I think we see that in schools where children are not engaged in education. And I'm passionate that education should be for all children, the best for everyone. And, it, you know, you were talking about comprehensives. Why aren't they good enough? Shouldn't that be where the focus is, that all children have access to education? But if you've got... If you've got um, a comprehensive in a deprived inner city area in this country, an area that has got huge social problems, um, language problems, that not everybody's speaking the same language that's attending those classes, very difficult in that environment for the really bright youngster to achieve their very best, isn't it? So the first thing you have to do is look at the funding. What is the funding? Is it good enough for a school like that? You know, I, you know, I, I don't work money in the city. So, money can't solve everything. No, but money can actually buy you staff and it can buy you extra vision. It can stretch. I, I sort of heard setting going on yeah. there, streaming. Yeah. And it gives you, if you've got more staff, you can stream, you can stretch every so, child. So you do believe in streaming? I, I do, you know, because every child should be brought on to the maximum of their potential, but at the same time in a happy environment as well. So just because there are children who might have learning needs and might have difficulty accessing the internet whatever the problem all those children should have the opportunity to learn and at the moment in this country we don't do that is it unfair at 11 years old and then 13 years old to divide children up it is and i'll tell you why because i'm a mum of three children they're all grown up now i've been in education nearly 30 years i've had experiences that weren't very good in education myself and you see children developing at different times in their life as well now we already write off children and say they failed when they don't pass the 11 plus when they don't 
pass their or get good SATs results, when they don't pass common entrance exam, we're already writing children off. A third of children don't pass their GCSE maths or English, do they? So we're telling, we're telling children from the start <coughs> that they're failing. But Christine, isn't that a good training for life? No, it's not because children... Because the whole of, but hang on, the whole of life is a series of tests. But it is, but don't and we And some we pass and some we fail. I bet you developed at different times to your peers at school. Well, I'm probably still growing up now, well, I don't know. Well, aren't we? Yeah, <laughs> and you get better with age. You definitely get better with age. No, but, but, here's, but here's my point. The idea that, you know, you do, you do well or badly in GCSEs or A-levels or whatever yeah. it is, well, tough. Yeah, it is tough. Because life's like that. But it is. But then there are some of us who might have failed at 16, who did well at 18 or at 21. I didn't get my MBA till I was in 2013. So I believe in lifelong learning. And life isn't as simple as that. We've all got to do the best we can with what we're given. There are 163 grammar schools still left. Buckinghamshire, of course, has a few. Yeah. Kent has a lot, but it's, you know, over the whole of the country, it's not very many. Most of them are now super selective, of course, not yeah. just selective. It's the top 2% in areas, whatever it is. Would you be, so would you be opposed to an extension of the number of grammar schools? I'm not opposed to anything that's good for the best of the children of this country. But all the time we're failing, most children, well, a majority of children, I think we are, and we're looking at social mobility, we're not addressing that. So I think there's wider issues. I don't, anything that provides the best for children, totally agree. So your emphasis then would be, rather than what Jonathan Gullis is pushing, your emphasis would be to improve the worst comprehensives. I, I believe you need to get and then do something about it, because children are failing on a daily basis, and it's not their fault. Said with passion. Christine Carniff, thank you very much <laughs> indeed you. for joining us here on GB News. Now, my What the Farage moments. Rwanda, yes, much discussed yesterday, uh, and I made the point very, very strongly that it could be a huge disincentive for people across the English Channel. But today we learn from the government that actually it isn't going to be before the end of May that action uh, happens. We were told the first flights would happen before the end of this month. And we learned today there are now six separate legal challenges against the government, at least six we know of, and that that means deportations to Rwanda will be delayed by several months. And that is probably the best news the criminal gangs and traffickers have heard over in Calais and Dunkirk and all of those places on the northern French coast, because they can say to people, come on, get a move on. You've got a few months to do this before they implement it. The window has got bigger, and that as we go in to warmer weather and more settled seas. And this, this threatens to do the most enormous damage to the government. Remember, there are one million people on waiting lists, social housing waiting lists in this country. Joe Biden, well, he's always worth a mention, isn't he? So Joe Biden is establishing a disinformation government board. Yes, and they're going to be in investigating what goes on on social media. Now, Donald Trump, of course, did attack what he saw as fake news, what he saw as fake media. The concern, I think, with Joe Biden doing this are the kinds of people that he has appointed. Uh, Nina Jankowicz, she's in charge. I mean, her background, you know, a former advisor to the Ukrainian government, and we know the links there that have existed between the Biden family and the Ukrainian government. She's described as an expert on disinformation. Well, many, many, including people like Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader in the House, you know, they've described this as truly Orwellian. And in an age 
when so many of the liberal left want to shout down the opposing argument, want to decry the opposing argument, want to ban the opposing argument, I think people have a right to be scared about a board looking at disinformation headed up by Joe Biden's appointees. Elon Musk, please hurry up, raise the money, get Twitter. We need you very, very badly. And here's a what the Farage moment. I'm going to praise President Macron. You know, hold on to your hats. He has had a 130-minute discussion with Putin today. Now, it may achieve nothing, and it may be impossible, and Putin may now be incredibly mad, bad, and dangerous, but it does seem to me that it makes sense, wherever you can, to have conversations with people. I think Macron's doing the right thing. I wonder why the US government aren't trying to do more. Yes, I understand our position too. Boris Johnson spoke today, you know, down the line, to the Ukrainian parliament. But you need to speak to your opponents. You need to keep open dialogue. As Churchill said, George Orr is better than War War. In a moment, it's Talking Pines. I'll be joined by former athlete, all-round TV personality and celebrity, and now life coach, Chris Akabusi. Welcome back. It's Talking Pints, my favourite time of the day. Now, somebody, somewhere, is guilty, is responsible. They've nicked the GB News pint glasses. So this is what we've got. And I'm very sorry, Chris Akabusi. But we'll That's have OK, to... Nigel. I'm supposed to be an athlete, so I'm taking it easy, buddy. You're on the same schedule as me. Cheers. Chris, I'm trying to think. Is there a popular television programme that you actually haven't appeared on. Um, because looking at the list, I mean, it's almost unbelievable, isn't it? You know, A Question of Sport, which used to be great. Yes, yeah. I'm not mm -hmm. so sure it is anymore, mm -hmm. to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. uh, lost some of its humour. They think it's all over. It is now. Last of a summer wine. I know. Come dime with me. <laughs> uh, cameo role in EastEnders. Uh, the big fat quiz of the 80s, a league of their own, never mind that. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. You must love telly. I've been a lucky boy, you know. Um, it's really funny. The, the, when I was a kid at school, the big refrain was Akabusi out or Akabusi sit down, shut up and stop running around. I've been paid in my life after <laughs> get up, run around and laugh. So all those programs, they just Akabusi, go on and laugh. <laughs> well, that's why they keep inviting you back. Yeah. But you obviously have great fun doing it. You know, look, you, you know, you know, life's for living. Uh, I've been a very lucky lad. Uh, I've enjoyed my life, and I learned early on, early on that if you laugh, yeah. the world laughs with you. Now. The, what, what, what rather than at you? Well, well, actually, that's a good question because that's what I'm saying is that I, I left school with nine no levels. And so actually, I think the teachers had the last laugh because I was laughing in school. They're laughing at me now. Yeah. And so the army, was it, was it the army that made Chris Akabusi? Yeah, the army was my, my, my saving grace. I'm, I was living in the children's home. I yeah. was very scared of the reality that I had to leave the home. I was going to be working in, in sort of in between Edmonton and Tottenham. And I knew I couldn't look after. I knew I couldn't look after myself. I'm bed, bed sit down was terrifying. The army was a safe, secure place to be. You had um, three square meals a day. You had a roof over your head. And you had some clothes. I mean, they were green, but they were clothes. Yeah, yeah. But the most important thing for me really was male role models. 
And I, I know you've got to be careful what you say in today's world, but certainly in the world that I was born up in, it was very important for a young man like me who was, um, you know, a little bit all over the place, not sure of who he was, where he was going, very exuberant, exciting, gregarious, that you had this sort of infrastructure where they were, at that time, senior males at the top who would mm. keep you into line. And you, and you respected those guys? 100%, oh yeah. One, I remember my very first day on a parade square. as a little jock, because he was a Scotsman, they called him jock, and he bellowed on the, on the parade square, 800 men on parade, ah! By the end of the 28 weeks, um, 200 be sick, 100 be lame, and 100 go to mama! <laughs> and I knew when he shouted that across the parade square, I knew it wasn't going to me, be me. And for the very first time in my life, I made a resignation to stick at something, mm. to belong at something, to make something. And not to fail. And not to fail. And every week, the kids were going off of camp, and I was there. So I was proud as punch. Yeah. 28th week, I was there. Best, best bib and tucker, making my way into the army. And sport. Sport, not part of your life particularly before you joined the no. army, which is very... Uh, given what you went on to do, yeah. very, very unusual. Yeah. So what age are you when you really take up sport properly? So, at school, all disciplined, I've already said that. Didn't turn up for training. Joined the army, met a guy called Sergeant McKenzie. He was an army athlete and he invested in me, bought me on my athletic spikes, developed a training programme, put me into races north-east of, of, of England, because I was up there, why I had an alley in um, Newcastle. That's my watch, by the way. I was up there in the north-east of the country. And every time I performed very well, he put up on company orders. And company orders is a thing that you have at the guard room. Every soldier that goes back looks at company orders, Akabuzi army flyer. Akabuzi does it again. Akabuzi north-east champion. All of a sudden, I felt yeah. massive. And that was my gateway into the world of international athletics. And in 1983, went to the World Championships. I was a British champion in the 400 metres flat. Went to the World Championships and bingo, part of the British team. Come away with Olympic medal a year later. You got a silver, didn't you, in Los Angeles? Bingo, Nigel! Right on cue! <laughs> you must have knew it was coming! There he goes! There he goes, buddy! Uh, I've, I've carried that with me for the last term, to 37 say, years. I've got to say, I have never, ever, I don't think, held an Olympic medal. This ne is neither Stephen Woodgrave. So that is something else, isn't it? Thank you very much. That it's, is it's, something it's, else. It's my denkmal, and a denkmal is a general word, which means to think on, cogitate, ruminate on, and to hold it on to. And you carry this every day? Every single day of my life, it's with me, because it tells me with um, a dream, the right people in your life, commitment, dedication, you can do great things. Let's, for those of you out there who think Chris Akabusi is just a TV star, because <laughs> you're not old enough to remember him as an athlete, we're going to show a clip. And this is Chris in the World Athletics Championships, 1991, Tokyo in the 4x400m relay, the gold medal winning leg. Let's have a look. In the individual event, Akabusi, bronze in the 400 hurdles. Here he goes. This is an important point. Can Akabusi do it? Akabusi has a go. And the American is beaten. And he's fighting back. Akabusi has made it. Akabusi, gold for Britain. America second. And Jamaica third. Having a look at this, Chris. So it was World Championships, European Championships, Commonwealth Games. Yeah. Um, but, you know, golds and breaking David Hemery's record that had amazing. been there. He was a great athlete. Oh, and, oh, amazing athlete. And, and he was an athlete winning at a time when, you know, the Olympics for us 
I mean, you literally could put the gold medal winners and silver medal winners in a telephone box. Absolutely. Because we, you know, we get one a game or two a game or, or whatever it was. Um, you actually had quite a long career, didn't you, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, David Henry, 68. Yes. I remember it. And even when I got into the team, when I got into the team, our champ I got in the team 83, 84. Our champions were Sebastian Coe, Nord Coe now, yep. Steve Ovet, Steve Cram, Ober Daly Thompson, Daly Thompson. These were our stars. For the rest of us, really, the main aim was to get on the plane. It wasn't until the <laughs> mid 80s that it started happening. I'm only here for the bit. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. You know, we just get, we get a lovely little badge, you know, get a little pin, and they, I'm in LA, yeah. But, um, from the mid-80s onwards, oh, Team GB was just massive. And the names like Christie, Gunnell, Jackson, uh, you know, Regis. And then the lottery funding. And it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, you know, I don't think John Major got a lot right. Mm. But, but I do think some of that lottery funding being targeted at sport, it did make a difference, didn't it? It did make a difference. Um, to a, a lot of sports, you know, you know the, the cycling, the rowing, mm. if you think of the London 2012 games, if you think of Rio 2016 and the success we had there, I think you can put a lot at the door of lot, lottery funding. However, my challenge is that because the money was there right at the beginning for a lot of athletes, I wonder how hungry they remained. So someone like myself, for example, I wasn't earning any money in Chattanooga Athletics until my last three or four years, because unless you made finals, you didn't make any money. And there was a guy called Ellie Kulukundas who was a massive benefactor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Eddie was a guy who paid for my warm weather training, for example. And it was really important to go away, you know, as lovely as Great Britain is, you know, try, you can't be doing reps, 300s, 200s, 100s in December and January year. You've got to go to California, check out the sunshine. I get it. You, you don't yeah. need to do any of that. <laughs> you it's do the reps. Awesome. You work out for about two hours and the rest of it, yo, let's hang out on the beach. You know what I'm saying? Daily Thompson's in, in your face. Oh, no, it's a good But it is, I mean, you see, I can remember growing up, it was almost like we kind of enjoyed not being champions at things. It was yeah. sort of, it was part of our, oh, well, we gave it our best shot. Yeah. And suddenly, suddenly, you know, young kids want British athletes to win. Yeah, yeah. It's all of a sudden, it's cool to win. Yes. I, I mean... So is that a sort of American influence on us, do you think? Um, the Americans like winning, don't they? I mean, yes and no. I mean, I think, as I said, um, in the 80s and 90s, with us lot going across to America, Mm. and going to their backyard mm. and training with them and seeing them and all that. And then there was another guy called, um, another guy called Andy Norman. And anybody who's into athletics knows that Andy Norman was the impresario. And Andy brought all the big names to the United Kingdom. And again, there was only a few channels. So you had Phillips Knights of Athletics on a Friday. You had another major meet on a Saturday. The whole of the nation would key into that. You got the best American stars and you got us also ones. But Every single race, you're getting closer and closer. So that come the major championships, all of a sudden, I've raced you three or four times, yeah. and actually, I'm that close. And so I think you get that confidence um, and that belief in yourself and that idea that I can do this. On my day, I can do this. So I think there's a whole raft there's of things. A confidence thing yeah, and all of it. Yeah. So are we, are we in a good place now with athletics? Looking ahead for British athletics? So we've got... So women's athletics is in a better shape than the men's athletics for GB. Yep. So, you know, we've got quite a few great, good women middle distance runners. Um, 
But like my event, well, say my event, actually, no, because uh, Roger Black and Derek Redmond, they, they nussed me out and I had to go to the 400 hurdles. But my old event, the 400, 400 flat, where we were brilliant, we were brilliant, we didn't take anybody to the, uh, the last games. Mm. So, uh, yeah. so, you know, there, there's yeah. some ups and downs. Um, I do think that professional football has taken a lot of our athletes. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Just as, just as athletics has taken the Jamaican um, sprinters away from cricket. Yeah, correct. Yeah, exactly. Those great sprinters were yeah. also really yeah, good cricketers. Michael, Michael Holding coming down no, in. But no, no, no. I mean, Bolt mm. yeah, 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 yeah. played first-class cricket yep, in the so West Indies yeah, and sure. could have been a test bowler. Sure. But, sure. but, but so sports are competitive with each sure. other. Sure. Outside of all of that, Chris, you know, you, you've got some quite strong views on the world. Mm. Or, say strong views, clearly defined views. Mm. You know, you thought Scotland should stay with Absolutely. the United Kingdom and you Absolutely. felt very, very strongly about that. And you've always yeah. been much more on the conservative side of sure. thinking yeah. than you've mm -hmm. been on the... On yeah. the on Supported you and Brexit. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> no, well, you were, I mean, actually, you know, you were interested in what I was doing going back a long, long way. I yeah. Mean. So, now, tell me, forgive me if I... I've got this picture in my head that I met you at at a um, airport once. This is before you were, yeah. you know, right at the top of your game, and uh, that we had a conversation um, about some of the things that you were thinking about. But it could and be that was just... in two thousand and four. Oh, was that you? Yeah, remember it was. Get it. It was. It was. I thought. I thought that. Can't, can't forget you, mate. Yeah. Can we? <laughs> yeah. No, I, and I was very struck meeting you back then. Say mm. almost twenty years ago. Yeah. That you, know, you were thinking along these lines yeah. and asking questions yeah, yeah. about all of this. But it's difficult. Chris, isn't it? You know, doing all the TV stuff you do, mm. you can't say too much, really, can you? Well, that's a good question. Just the way the world is these days. Yeah. It's very judgmental, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so it is very difficult when you want to fit in, daring to stand out. Mm. And you are aware when you're building your career and your that you can say a few things wrong and then all of a sudden you are yeah, sidelined and yeah. you're out. Yeah. And then the, your way of feeding your family and looking after the people mm. that matter most to you is taken away from you. But then as you get a little bit older, and I'm 63 now, you begin to realise, you know, this is a great gig. We haven't got long, long left. So you need to stand up for the things all that right. you really All right, here goes in. then. How's Go Boris for? doing? He's doing brilliant. OK. <laughs> he's doing brilliant. Look, 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 look. He's, he, <laughs> Is, is Boris uh, the perfect example of, of virtue? No. But, you know, he's done brilliant with um, getting us out of the European Union. Yep. He did um, brilliant when it came to... I mean, I, I didn't agree with him they did with COVID, but he did his bit in COVID. Right now, you've, you've got to give the man his due, you know? He's stepping up in the face of Russian aggression. And I think he, he looks very much... When I said a statesman, you know, he's, he's believable. And you can see that... He's a bit shabby for a statesman, isn't he? Well, yeah, look, yeah, he's, he's not... But, you know, <laughs> you, you know, but you, you couldn't say it about a woman, so you shouldn't say it about Boris. It's because it's not about his looks, it's about what he does and how he steps right, up. No, no, it's a strong defence. Black Lives Matter, taking the knee. Yeah. Would you take the knee if you were on an athletics track today? Uh, that's, a great, that's a great question. So I've not... Re oh, look, I understood... When, because when, when, look, what happened to that chat? Yeah, but at 63, you've got to say what you think, haven't you? But I understand why it all kicked off. Yeah. You know, uh, and that was awful, uh, what happened to that, that chap. I don't know now, a year and a half later, whether football players kneeling before a match 
means anything more than the kickoff or anything yeah, else that they do. So it's, it's become a little bit ritualistic now. Um, would I have done it? You, the question you yeah. asked was, yeah. would I have done it? Mm. If my athletic career depended upon it, yeah. <laughs> That's a very honest answer. And you're now a life coach. What's a life coach? Who do you help? Yeah. Well, I help all sorts of people from, from executives to a housewife. Yep. Yeah. Um, existential issues are my, is, is my thing. Uh, and, and what is that about? All of us have two things in common. We're thrown into this world without our, without our say-so. And one day, whether we like it or not, we're going to be ripped out. And those things create anxiety, isolation, um, alienation. Yeah. And I support people as an advisor, coach, around some of the challenges they've got with what's called limit situations. So all of a sudden, Nigel, you say something wrong, you're out on your ear, yeah. you haven't got a pot to yeah. in. Yeah. Yeah. What do you do? Where do you go? All of a sudden you're worried and you've got a little bit of time to walk so you, down the journey. So, so you come to Chris Asabisi and get it all sorted out. That's easy for you to say. <laughs> I got that wrong. Thank you for joining me. No, 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 bless you, mate. Cheers. Cheers. Okay, we've got a few seconds left on the programme. Your Barrage to Farage questions. Maria asks, what does Chris think about gambling in sport? As he did adverts for bookies. Yes. Sinner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I do understand that some people have challenges with gambling, yeah. with, with sex, with drugs, all sorts yeah, of things. Everything. But um, in general, it's just another okay. revenue stream for many people. In 30 seconds, what does Chris make of the trans athletes debate? Yeah, well, I, I, know, I, I know what a woman is. OK, well, that answer was pretty clear and pretty decisive. <laughs> I don't think we need to go any further. I've actually got time for one more. Mick in Cornwall says, Dear Nigel, Boris keeps saying Ukraine will win. Is that just wishful thinking? Well, look, who's to say? Who's to say what will happen? Uh, thus far, Ukrainian forces appear to have done very, very well. But Putin is now backed into a corner like a rat in a trap and he's going to do what the hell he can to win in Donbass. Come what may, whatever the consequences, that's how scary it is. That's why Macron speaking to him is the right thing to do. We have to speak to people, however much we may dislike them and despise them.